Our text for today uh, comes from 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, at one point in my life, I had this memorized in King James, but I will spare you uh, that this morning and read it for you in NIV. If I speak in the tongues of men or angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have the, uh, a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now, we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. You may be seated. All right. Good morning, everybody. How are we doing? Good? Yes, yes, yes. Uh, well... I'd like to say thanks for joining us, whether you're here in person or online. We're happy to see you, and we're happy uh, that you're with us today. Uh, just one follow-up from what Ashley said before we get into the message today. Next Sunday is the beginning of Advent, and Advent, as, as many of you know, is the Christian name for the season of Christmas. Uh, and we really think that Advent is particularly important, especially this year. One, because uh, it is a, there's something in the season of Advent that kind of teaches us a spiritual discipline, and that spiritual discipline is the spiritual discipline of learning how to wait well. You know, uh, I remember when I was growing up, my grandmother sent us some Christmas gifts, and I knew, I thought I knew what they were, but I could not wait to open that gift. And so I, I tore into them, and I found out that I had knee pads and shin pads for, for inline skates, uh, which was good. I, and then I kind of turned the package around, and I put it at the back to try to hide it. And my mother, uh, realizing that I had broken into the Christmas gifts a little bit early, got very, very frustrated with me. You see, I think the primary spiritual discipline that's involved in gift giving is not uh, even thankfulness or learning how to receive a gift well. It is in waiting, especially if you're a young person. But there's something inherent in the season of Advent other than just gift giving. It's this uh, period of time before Christmas where we anticipate, where we wait. You know, the people of Israel waited for the Messiah to come. The beginning of Luke's gospel and the beginning of Matthew's gospel are stories of the people of God waiting for, for the deliverer, for the Messiah. And in our day, in that same way, Advent is not just a waiting for Christmas. It's not just a waiting for some gifts. It's not even a waiting for a Christmas Eve service where we talk about the baby Jesus. Advent is about 
waiting for the coming of Jesus. Not the first coming, but the second coming of Jesus. And it's meant to create a kind of holy longing in our hearts for the coming of our Lord. This is what Advent is. This is what the Christmas season is supposed to do for us. And in a season like we're in now, which is, we could call it just the season of COVID, uh, many of us feel as though we have been waiting indefinitely for about a year now, don't we? It just seems like 2013 just has an ellipsis on the end of, or 2013, 2020 just has an ellipsis on the end of it, right? Or like this whole year is just the spinny pinwheel, the loading pinwheel on your computer. I think in a time like ours, where we're just kind of all waiting for real life or normal life to get back to the way it was, it's going, Advent has something special to teach us this year about how we wait and how, and how waiting can become a spiritual practice and how longing for the coming of Jesus is something that is inherent to the Christian faith. Only we don't wait passively, we rather wait in hope. We wait with vigilance. Uh, looking for the coming of our Lord. And so we're going to be looking specifically at that over the next number of weeks in the, ser- in the season of Advent about how we wait well as the people of God. And I'm looking forward to it. So uh, be sure to uh, join us either online or here in person over the next four weeks. Along with that, we do have, Ashley mentioned, we do have resources. We have an Advent guide that's a daily devotional for you if you'd like to take that. Um, with, uh, with readings, not just daily, but three times a day, because there's a rhythm to our spiritual lives that's really healthy when we begin to pray and read uh, at different times of the day. And we also have a number of other little things planned as well. So uh, I, we just want to put that on your radar. All right? Okay, good, good. We are praying that this season of Advent will, will be one of the most spiritually significant seasons that any of us have ever experienced, because I, for one, need it to be, right? And I think many of us do as well. So today, uh, we are finishing up our series we're calling A Visible Kingdom, which is all about the church and the way that the church is meant to make the kingdom of God visible in the world. And we're concluding this series today by talking about what it means to be a healthy church. What does it mean to be a healthy church? You know, at the end of one of his chapters in this book called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, Pete Scazzaro makes a very simple, but also, I think, really, really profound statement about the church. Here's what he says. It'll be on the screen for you. He says, one of the greatest gifts we can give our world is to be a community of emotionally healthy adults who love well. Right? Pretty good. Pretty good. Now, on the surface, I don't think that's a statement that any of us would disagree with, would it? That one of the greatest gifts that the church of Jesus Christ can give to the world is to be a group of emotional adults who have grown up to become loving people, right? And I think this is, if we took an informal poll in the room, what most of us want our lives to look like, right? Most of us want to be loving people. If you were given the choice between growing up into a loving person or an angry, vindictive person, most of us would choose the loving side of the spectrum, wouldn't we? Uh, And if you ask the average person on the street, would you like to be a part of a church full of people moving towards emotional maturity and love? 
or a part of a church full of people becoming more self-righteous and self-focused and religious? The answer to that one would be easy as well, right? I would like to be a part of a church full of people who are moving towards maturity and love. But while most of us would say that, and it's pretty easy if the choice is presented to us in that kind of binary form to say, yeah, I want to be a loving person or I want to be a part of a church full of loving people. Any of us who have lived any amount of time on this earth know that this type of growth towards spiritual and emotional health is not easy. It turns out to be quite difficult, doesn't it? There are all kinds of countervailing forces and circumstances in our world trying to prevent us from becoming this type of loving people, the type of people that Jesus clearly wants us to be. And any of us who have spent any time in and around church know that sometimes the church can be a place where love and health don't win the day, right? They just don't. I don't want to dig up old wounds for anybody here, but um, uh, who among us who have spent any length of time in or around the church have not been hurt by it or by people within it in some way, shape, or form, right? One of the things that most grieves my heart just in general, is when I see a place that's supposed to be an institution built on the foundation of love for God and love for neighbor turn into a place that kind of just chews people up and spits them out. And we see it far too often, don't we? I've seen it too often in my life. Frankly, I've experienced it personally too much in my life. And this is part of the reason that I believe the most important calling for the church for the community of Jesus, is to be emotionally and spiritually healthy community of loving people. That's why it's probably one of the most important things, if not the most important. And so as we wrap up this sermon series today, I just want to talk about that. How do we become a healthy community of loving people? How do we become a healthy church full of love? How do we become a, a people on a journey together towards becoming more loving, towards becoming the ideal of what a community is supposed to be in the mind of God. Now, when I say that, it's, it, it, it makes sense, right? We want, we want to become that. But the problem that arises is it's hard to measure loving, isn't it? It's, it's, not, it's not a particularly measurable, measurable thing. How much do I love my wife? I don't know. I can kind of, in an, in an abstract way, say I love her more this year than I did last year. But, we, but it's hard to measure. You can't, and in the same way, you can't measure necessarily the, the, how loving a church is or isn't. And basing uh, how you measure a church on love is something that it turns out to be quite difficult. And so people tend to measure the success of a church not on how loving that community is, but rather on certain external factors, right? Like how many people are present in that church, or how much money that church has, or how nice its building is. Measuring how healthy a church is turns out to be quite difficult. How do you measure love? right? How do you measure emotional and spiritual maturity? How do, how do you measure those things? Uh, but here's the truth. I think God measures the church on its health, not on its financial standing, right? 
Not even on the number of people. Not, not on, definitely not on how nice or not nice the building is, right? God measures the quality of a church based on its health. And I think we should too. I think we should too. And so uh, I, we have this teaching text in front of us today from 1 Corinthians where Paul is instructing the Corinthian church about what it means to be or become a loving community. Now, if you've been with us over the last number of weeks, we've been in 1 Corinthians for the last three weeks. And so you might be a little familiar with the context of this letter, but Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, and this church was dysfunctional. They were unhealthy. And one of the areas where they displayed their dysfunction, where they kind of put their dysfunction on display, was in their public worship gatherings. If you, uh, if you walked into the Corinthian church during uh, a Sunday morning when they were worshiping, you would see behavior that seemed very spiritual. You might have thought that they were doing quite well, actually. But Paul, in his letter, actually calls the church out. He says that they are not, what they are doing is not actually good, but rather what they are doing is putting on a kind of big and showy display of, quote, spiritual things or spirituality. Maybe religiosity is a better term. Things that were meant to impress but lacked true spiritual substance. They had prophecy. They had tongues. They had powerful worship. But they were lacking something. They were lacking love. They were clearly lacking love for Jesus and love for neighbor. You see, if we were going to sum up Paul's message in 1 Corinthians 13 that we heard read this morning, it would be this. Loving well is the true essence of spirituality. Loving well is the true essence of spirituality. If you have your Bibles, you can open them to 1 Corinthians 13, chapter 1, where we read Paul say this, If I speak in tongues of men and angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all the mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Nothing. Tongues, the working of miracles, morally praiseworthy acts like giving our money away to the poor. Paul says these things, if they are devoid of agape or love, it's just like clanging symbols. It's just like clanging symbols. It's just noise. You know, the clanging symbol in Corinth was uh, an image that his audience might have been familiar with. It was actually associated with the cult of Sybil, if you're familiar with that. And this cult was famous for its loud and crazy worship practices. And so, Paul may be saying to this church that without love, even the most spiritual behavior is no better than the noise of pagan worship, which is pretty intense, right? Which is an incredibly strong critique, actually. Paul begins chapter 13 by making it quite clear that what God is after is not style, but substance. Not style, but substance. And the substance he is after in the church and in our hearts is 
love. It's love. All religious action is meaningless unless done in agape or love. And that is all fine and good, right? We can say that. But what does love mean, right? To make love the center of our religion, to make love the center of our spirituality, to grow into becoming more loving people in the name of Jesus, what does that mean? Because we come to this text with certain presuppositions about what love is, right? And what love means. If you've grown up in the Western world, if you've grown up in America like I have, you probably have some assumptions about what love is kind of hard-baked into you that are actually kind of misunderstandings of what Paul means when he says the word love or agape here. We think in our context of love as being powerful and sentimental feelings, don't we? Right? We think it's, it's what the movies are all about, right? It's something, uh, basically, if, if you ask the average person on the street, are you in control of your love? They would say no. I'm not in control of love. Love is something that happens to me, right? It's a feeling. It just sweeps me up and takes me away. It kind of hits me over the head, and that's what love is. Love is not within my control. It's just a, a confluence of chemicals, reactions in my brain. Like, I, I don't do love. But in the cultural context that Paul was writing from, love, or agape, is not primarily a feeling. It's not an experience you have that you are not in control of. Love, in Paul's language, is a word that has roots to it. Because from the biblical perspective, and most certainly from Paul's understanding, love is a verb. Love is a verb. It is an action word. If you have your Bibles with you, you can hop down to verse 7 of chapter 13. And right in verse 7 there, you will see that Paul ends what is really an initial description of what love is or how love functions in the church with a series of four very strong verbs, very strong action words that characterize the type of love he is talking about. He, he says these four action-oriented words. Now, I have it on the screen in the ESV because I think it's a, the translation that does the best job of communicating to us what this passage is all about. But here's what he says in verse 7. He says, Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is not about simple belief or feeling. Love for Paul is about our concrete action, right? I love Ken Burns documentaries. I love Ken Burns documentaries. Have any of you, you like Ken Burns documentaries? Nah, right? Nah, not really. Uh, one of the documentaries that we've watched recently and that I really enjoyed was the documentary on the Roosevelts. Uh, Particularly the part about President Teddy Roosevelt. I didn't know much about Teddy Roosevelt. From my perspective, he was just the guy who, uh, you know, did the national parks and liked to be outside. That was, the, about the, that was about the gist of what I understood of Teddy Roosevelt. But one thing I learned from this documentary is that Teddy Roosevelt had a motto. He had a motto for his life. It was this little catchphrase that he repeated often to other people and to himself. It was a, it was a life motto. And that life motto was this, get action. Get action. 
Uh, he is quoted as describing what get action means this way. He says, get action, do things, be sane, don't fritter away your time, create, act, take a place wherever you are and be somebody, get action. Uh, that will get you pumped up, right? That's the type of thing you yell at your football team before a game. For Paul, love is not a feeling. It is not passive. It is, some, it is not something that just happens to us. It's, uh, it's love for Paul is something we learn through doing. We learn it through doing. Maybe Paul's catchphrase would have been this, get love, do it, do the loving things. This is how the New Testament scholar Richard Hayes, commenting on this passage, passage, sums it up. He says this, Love is not merely a feeling or an attitude. Rather, love is the generic name for specific actions of patience and costly service to others. If we attend closely to what Paul actually says in this chapter, all the sweetly sentimental notions of love will be dispelled and replaced by a rigorous vision of love that rejoices in the truth and bears all suffering in the name of Jesus Christ. Love for Paul is not about a feeling so much as it is about the formation of our character. You'll see this specifically if you read verses 4 through 7 of 1 Corinthians 13. Paul describes love as virtuous action that must be learned and cultivated in our lives over time. So, the church should be a kind of school where we learn the characteristic traits of love. Church should be a school where we learn to become loving people. We must devote our, where we devote our energies to learning how to love well in relationship with others. You see, if the church is to be all that God would have it to be, we must become a community of loving persons in vital connection with our loving God through the person of Jesus. But this is not easy, is it? Because the culture around us and the very dispositions of our sinful hearts want to pull us away from this type of deliberate loving action. This is why, for Paul, love is not sentimental. For Paul, he describes love as a heroic act. Love persists in the face of a hostile world. This is why the most loving people you will ever meet will probably also be some of the most brave. You ever thought of that? They're not pushovers. They tend to be very, very brave because they, because, uh, they have learned that love is not just a feeling. Love without action is not love. Love is action that goes against the flow of our selfish culture and of our selfish hearts. You can't learn love without challenging the status quo of your own life. You can't learn love without challenging the status quo of, of our predominant culture. You, can, you, can, you can't grow to become a healthy and loving person unless you learn to actively lay down your life, to die daily, to take up your cross, and to follow Jesus. This is the only way to be loving. It's the only way to learn love. You see, love has a kind of backbone to it. It really does. Which leads us to our next point this morning. Love looks like Jesus on the cross. 
if you want to articulate for yourself or for other people what love looks like, when love is fully formed within us, when we become loving people, what is the nature of our lives when we become loving people? When we as we continue to become a church full of loving and emotionally healthy people, what does our church look like? That love must look like Jesus on the cross. If we want to understand what love is, if we want to grow to become both emotionally and spiritually healthy people, surprise, surprise, we have to look to Jesus, right? And without Jesus, we don't know what love is. Here's, this is true. We, uh, we experience love as feelings, as things that happen to us. And so we, we orient ourselves towards those things. But unless we understand what Jesus did and who Jesus is, we'll never be, we'll never be properly oriented to the reality of what true love is and how it functions in our lives. In uh, the book of 1 John, in 1 John chapter 3, uh, verses 11 and then 16 and 18, this is what John says. He says, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And then he defines love a few, a few verses uh, down, in, beginning in verse, six, verse, verse 16, where he says this, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers or for uh, fellow believers. He says, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, he's encouraging them to grow up here, right? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. For our love to be genuine, for it to be for the, for the good use of God, and for the good use of God's kingdom, it has to take its cues from Jesus. Love in the biblical sense is characterized by self-sacrifice because that is the very nature of Jesus' love for us. It's found in self-sacrifice, in, in the way in which Jesus laid down his life for us and for the world. But we don't always understand that. We, we won't understand the very nature of love as, self as being self-sacrificial unless we are vitally connected to Jesus. Unless we have experienced the love and self-sacrifice of Jesus that is towards us. Because only then will we understand what love looks like. Godly love, or agape, is all about God's willingness to give himself away for the sake of others. This is what characterizes God's love. And the only motivation any of us have in this life to live self-sacrificially in that way is through understanding that that's what Jesus did for us. You see, and this is a controversial statement in our time, it really is. You cannot grow to become a truly loving person in the biblical sense without Jesus. 
It's a controversial statement, but I think it's true. This church can't reach its potential as a community of loving persons unless we first are vitally connected to Jesus. If we don't first see the love of God put on display in Jesus' death on the cross for us, that we might be reconciled to God, we will not see the value of loving or laying down our lives for other people. We just won't. You know, when we were unloving, Christ showed us what love looks like through his sacrificial death on the cross. If the love of Christ is not the north star of our lives, we will miss what love is. We will get focused on all kinds of other things. We will get focused on showy forms of spirituality that turn our gatherings into clanging gongs. Or we will get enamored with the external and begin to measure our lives through these improper metrics that we so often measure our lives by. Or most likely, what will happen is we will just get self-focused, right? If our, our lives are not seen through the lens of Jesus' self-sacrifice and his laying down of his life on our behalf, then we'll just kind of move more inward and inward and inward until our lives kind of fold in on themselves. But if we keep Jesus at the center, if we focus our lives on the cruciform nature of God's love for us, our world will open up. It will kind of unfold in front of us. And we will see that God gave his life for us so that we can give our lives to others. That we can embrace the heroic nature of love and we can step into God's ordained purpose for each of our lives because he first loved us. Because he first loved us. In short, we can become a healthy church of loving people out of our vital connection and understanding of what the love of God looks like in the person of Jesus. You see, I started this message out with a quote from Pete Scazzaro, so I think it'll probably be appropriate to finish it with a quote from him as well. Here's what he says in that same book. He says, loving well is the goal of the Christian life. This is easier in our dreams than in practice. It requires that we grow into emotional adulthood in Christ, the rewards of which are rich beyond measure. So will you stand with me this morning? And I want us to just do, uh, make a corp, in a, in a spirit of prayer, I just want us to make a corporate commitment together today. Just wherever you are, in the quietness of your heart, uh, if you're joining us online, if you're in the quietness of a living room or something, that we would embark on this adventure together of becoming a loving and healthy people. Many of us are already on it. That we would keep the love of Jesus exemplified in the cross and love for other people at the center of our lives. And that we would learn to grow and develop, and develop in that, and that it would be said of Grace Community Church that those are people who know how to love well. Those are people who know how to love well. It's a challenge in our lives, but I think it's one of the greatest challenges any of us can ever undertake, to be a group of healthy people keeping Jesus at the center, 
who know how to love well, love heroically in our world. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. And we thank you that you've gathered us together here today. We thank you for the example of Jesus who shows us what love looks like on the cross. We thank you for that cross, and we thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus for our sins. And we pray today, Lord, that you would help us to catch a fresh vision of the love that comes streaming towards us in the person of Jesus, that you would help us to daily die to ourselves and give ourselves over to that reality, that you would help us today to see the love of Jesus afresh and anew. And because of that, because of our connection, our relationship with Jesus, we would move out into this world as loving people. God, would you birth a vision in each of our hearts to grow in love, that our worship to you wouldn't just be clanging gongs or uh, slamming a bunch of pots and pans together, but rather our love would be pleasing to you. Our, our worship would be pleasing to you because it comes from a place. It flows out of love, the love of Jesus. So God, as we go from this place today, would you help us to be people who communicate the love and goodness of God out into our world? Would we, uh, and would we live actively this next week of Thanksgiving, would we remember that God loves us and that at any point of our day, we can connect vitally to that relationship. We can access that love. We pray it all this morning in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen and amen. All right. Thanks for joining us this morning. Uh, I hope you have a good Thanksgiving. My goodness. Go today in the grace and in the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ.